Hey there, banditos. Welcome to a bonus Friday episode of the Dollar Bin Bandits. I am Joe Marcello. I'm Warren Phillips. I'm Mike Farah. And today we're bringing you an Orn only episode. That's right. You started off this week with mostly Mike, mainly Mike, Mike on the mic. And mm. now you're finishing it off with Orn only. That's right. I am in none of this week's episodes, <laughs> but that is okay because these two fine gentlemen are bringing you the best and brightest that they have to offer. And today we're bringing you Oren's interview with none other than Tony Wolf. Yeah, Tony is a good friend of our George's uh, who's been on the show, George uh, Gustines from the New York Times. Um, and I've known Tony as a comic book creator. Uh, he's a writer. He's a cartoonist as well. And he's put out a book called Tales from the Wolf, which is sort of a, a compilation of the different works he's done over the years. Uh, a lot of it very New York City centered and very interesting stuff. I mean, he's a very good writer and a very good storyteller. And just to have him on the show, another independent uh, creator out there who's uh, getting his name out in the market. Actually, Bill Sienkiewicz, uh put a very glowing review about Bill, uh, Tony's book on uh, the back of the cover. Love to hear these voices from sort of outside the mainstream. And Oren really uh, brings it, brings his A-game uh, to all these interviews. So uh, looking forward to this one. Let's hear more from Tony Wolf. So Tony Wolf. Actor, artist, writer, joining us today. Tony, thank you so much. Uh, first question is we ask everyone, how did you first discover comics? Well, I was just actually listening. First of all, thank you, Oren. Thank you for having me on Dollar Bin Bandits. Um, I was watching some of your other uh, podcast interviews, and I saw J.G. Jones, who's a terrific guy and such an incredible artist. And I was watching his answer, right, of, of uh, finding comics at the drugstore, the spinner rack. Um, my, how I discovered comics is really, I guess it's somewhat similar, but when I was very small, my mother would take me shopping. Mm -hmm. And as a kid, a little boy, I was not that thrilled about being taken to the department store or the supermarket, you know, like, but she had to, she had to take me with her and she is great and was great. And, uh, she would buy me in our little town in Long Island they would have those impulse buy digests, comics digests at the at the counter at the supermarket when you were checking out, right? And so first they were Archie digests, I remember. You know, it would be like 50 cents in the 1970s or whatever. And she would get me some Archie digests, and I I like those. And back then, there were also some DC digests. There was one that was like Justice League, Legion of Superhero. It had like a blue ribbon on the cover, I remember. Mm -hmm. um, there was, and then she started buying me also, there were those oversized treasury editions, like Christmas with the Superheroes or some Shazam. I remember an oversized Shazam treasury edition and also the Marvel treasury editions. The, there was a Spider-Man and a Hulk. Those were really my first exposure. And I remember, I remember the Shazam very vividly, I remember Christmas with the superheroes. You can you could probably see that cover in your head, right? Of Christmas with the superheroes. I would imagine. Yeah. Yes, and the background color was a big green, and you know, <laughs> it was like Superman flying up to the top of a Christmas tree to put a star on it or something. Mm -hmm. Um the Hulk and the Spider-Man were were really, you know, very compelling. And 
the fact that those were treasury editions, they were so big. It was so cool to look at the art and really pour over the art. The digests were big for me. Um, I was just reading an article on Newsarama today about, uh, because of Stanley's birthday anniversary, Origins and Son of Origins. Bring on the bad guys, Marvel's greatest superhero battles. I would go to the, Kevin Smith was on those and he goes, if you were looking for comics in the library, those were the only ones in the late 70s. You know, best superhero battles, Marvel Origins, Son of Origins, bring on the bad guys. And yeah, I totally got those out of the library. And those were uh, huge. And then the Spider-Man Pocket Digest collections from Marvel, which were not the little rectangles of the DC collections, mm. but they were more like, you know, uh, a little mini magazine, kind of like in the, sh you know, a little bit smaller than that Fantastic Four thing you have there uh, to your to your side. Mm. Anyway, the Pocket Spider-Man collections were huge. And I think they also did a Pocket Hulk that had the first six Ditko and also the first six um, Spider-Man, obviously. And then there was a Fantastic Four as well. Anyway, those pocketbooks and the digests, that was pretty much my gateway. Although the real gateway for me was Planet of the Apes. Once the, I was a, a sci-fi kid, right? It was Planet of the Apes Marvel Comics. And when Star Wars hit and Marvel Star Wars adaptations, the Treasury editions and the comics, that was really like, previously I was just like, these digests are cool and these treasuries. But once Star Wars happened in 77 and Marvel, that was for me like, oh, it's more than just digests. Like there's a whole world of actual comics out there. And I immediately subscribed through the mail to Marvel's um, Star Wars stuff. And then I would, it, it worked exactly as marketing should have, meaning I would see the ads for other Marvel comics in the pages of the Star Wars books. And then right around the Empire Strikes Back adaptation, there were ads for Secret Wars coming, right? And then, I literally bought Secret Wars exactly like a marketing executive would, would want me to. Like, hey, I'll try this. It has all the characters. I'll give it a shot. And of course, it was fun and amazing and wild, especially when you're that age. Um, anyway, so really, I mean, I was always into also animation and cartoons, like any car any cool cartoon with superhero anything or fantastical elements. I remember I loved like, even things like Fantastic Voyage, the movie, as a kid. Anything sci-fi, geeky, animated. I read the Elric, Michael Moorcock books in elementary school. Like, I would just devour anything that was remotely geeky. It was in my DNA from a very young age. And the funny thing was, my brother is like a jock. My parents are not geeky. Like, I think they were sort of like, where did this kid come from? <laughs> you know, like, why is, I mean, obviously I was into all things that a lot of little boys are into, but it is funny that I, my parents are very loving and supporting uh, and supportive. And so is my brother. But I would joke that I was like the black sheep in the family because I was a super nerd and none of the other family really is. <laughs> so, hey, anyway, made you happy. It made me very happy, and I would draw like a madman from from when I was old enough to hold a pencil. But my brother also drew 
ex- my brother draws extremely well. He's kind of not really pursued it. But from a very young age, I was like, oh, my brother's a far better artist than me. And so I think, you know how a sibling will kind of emulate what the older sibling does, right? So he was drawing a lot. I was drawing. Uh, he, that's what my brother's doing. I'm going to draw too, <laughs> you know. Um, but unlike him, he would kind of draw for shorter periods of time. I was more obsessive and I would just draw for hours and hours and hours. So I was doing cartoons and comics from a very, like a lot of people, right, who go who try to go into that field or in that field. I was drawing like a crazy person from a very young age. <laughs> Whatever the obsessive tendency is, I had it. So, <laughs> Well, now it's all come together because you have a book out, Tales uh, from the Wolf. Is this a collection that starts from your childhood and goes to now, or is this specialized on a certain period of time in your life? So this is the only collected paperback I've ever had so far. Um, Previous to that, I had many comics that were published uh, by a friend of mine, um, Thomas Griffin, who did the coloring and uh, publication design for those mini comics. Um, What I always wanted to do, I started doing comics about, I mean, I did comics a lot as a kid, and I did I did my own superhero series as a teenager from seventh grade to freshman year of college. And that was about 150 pages. I wrote and drew it, lettered it, everything. It's not great, but it's, you know, I mean, it has its, I I have a warmth towards it. It's obviously a kid project, but, but, um, uh, I really wanted to be an illustrator for Marvel and DC when I was a teenager. And I actually went to Marvel or, and DC both trying to like show my portfolio to editors as a teenager. And, you know, I was okay for a teenager, but I was not ready for, I was not ready for prime time. I definitely wasn't, um, and they were encouraging and said, keep, you know, keep at it, kid. And you, you got a little talent, but keep at it, kid. And But for my 20s and 30s, I didn't really do comics as an artist because I really was so focused on I want to be an actor. And I was very afraid that people would say, you're an actor, but you also draw. Maybe you should just do this drawing thing because acting is so hard. And I don't know. I just I didn't want people to say you're a jack of many trades, master of none. I was very afraid of that. So I kept my drawing almost like a dirty secret through my 20s and 30s. And Dean Haspiel saw some of my stuff over those years, thanks to a friend named Brendan Deneen, who founded Scout Comics. He's one of the founders of Scout Comics. Um, And a friend named Mark Manny in college showed all my high school comics to Brendan Deneen. So thank you, Mark. Dean Haspiel saw my stuff a bunch of times and was like, you got to keep drawing, man. Like, why don't you make comics? What's wrong with you? And I really like, I discovered Dean's work when I was a teenager. So I was like, wow, Dean Haspiel says I should be doing comics, you know, like, uh, okay. (laughs) So not until I turned 40, did I really start to do comics because the acting, I had gotten some acting work, but I wasn't getting that much, you know, and I was 40. So it was like mini midlife crisis or whatever. Like, And I said, well, if I'm not getting acting stuff, maybe it's time. And a lot of friends, like this guy, Michael Turney, was like, dude, make your own comics or make your own film. Those are your choices because you're not getting a lot of work. And I was like, making a comic is pretty easy. You sit there with a pen and paper. Making your own film, I need a cinematographer. I need lighting. I need money. I need catering. I need, you know, locations. I was like, a comic is easier. So I started doing these short stories at age 40, autobio, 
because I didn't have fiction ideas that I thought were exciting. Um, and so this paperback, Tales from the Wolf, with an EC, of course, EC style riff cover. Um, I always, once I started doing these comics, I was like, maybe someone will care. <laughs> you know, maybe someone will like them. But I said, even if no one likes them, if I died next year, then I would at least have done some short stories. Once again, always going back, we were talking before we were recording, whether success comes or doesn't come or how many people like your stuff, it really always, I firmly believe this, it really always does come back to, do you love doing it? And are you driven Are you driven to keep doing it intrinsically, right? And then we hope success comes. Um and even if success comes medium level, do you still like doing it? Are you still wanting to make stories? You know, then then keep doing it. So I turned out a lot. Of, I turned out probably two or three short stories a year. When I say short stories, between five and eight pages. Some stories were 14 pages, some were 16. So I kept churning out stories um, from I'm 51 now. So from age 40 to 51, I churned out a bunch of short stories. And my goal was keep churning out short stories if I'm excited, if I'm inspired. Because as you know, these things take months. They take months to draw. Unless you're I have a I have a, a part, I have a day job four days a week. I get acting work, but it's not like tons. So it's a lot of time to sit there for eight hours, six hours at a stretch. Um anyway, my goal was always once I have enough to make a paperback. I'm going to make a paperback. And in the last year or two, three years, I finally had enough stories. You know, you could do a 110-page paperback, but that's not as enticing to a customer as a 200-page paperback where they can get more bang for their buck. Um, so finally, I had enough that I thought, okay, this now I can do a collection. And so this really um, is a labor of love for you. This was a project that, came from the heart it, you know it's you talking about yourself and from what you sent me i i love it because um we both live in new york but there's a very new york city feel to it just new york city feel to your art to the stories that i think it's going to capture a lot of people um was the cities a big part of this whole experience yeah yeah i mean thank you um i like you i am a massive comics fan right i am a reader First and foremost, and every good writer, every good writer says, make the stories you would want to read. I always remember Bendis saying that, right? Write the comic that's not on the stands or that. And it's a weird paradox about writing. If you write something that's truly, truly engaging and inspiring for you and is also past your internal editor, um, Maybe it has a chance of being interesting to others. But I say this, when I say I'm a reader, I've read a million comics. I've read a million autobio comics. So when I first started, I was like, my dating life at the time was not great. This nerdy guy who didn't have a lot of girlfriends and, you know, kind of a dork. And, and I was like, but I've already read autobio comics about people's dating lives. Like, I don't think I have a more interesting story. If I had some really wonderfully hilarious dating story about dating gone wrong, I would have written it. But my dating stories were just kind of not terribly interesting. <laughs> um, so I looked at the genre of autobio, um, and I'd read a lot of autobio. 
And I thought, I have to try to do something that doesn't bore me as a reader because I've read a million autobio, like, you know. Um, and so I really eventually latched on to this idea of Harvey Picar kind of writing half about his life, but half about the city and the town and the environment. And I was like, maybe my life isn't so fascinating, but if I mix anecdotes from my life that I think get a good response at a cocktail party or something, mm -hmm. if I, the best, you know, it's not like my life is one wild thrill ride, but <laughs> the funniest stories from my life, if I weave them in along with local neighborhood and city lore and local neighborhood and city flavor, that might be interesting enough because I was an English major in college, so I was always writing papers. And the teachers were very brutal in a good way about like, you have to be a really brutal editor on yourself. Like before you show it to anyone else, like I don't just want to write a cliche thing that I know is cliche and then show it to the world and go, isn't this great? <laughs> you know, like, so I really tried to be brutally hard on myself. Like someone who doesn't give a crap about me. They should have no reason to give a crap about me. A total stranger, would a total stranger maybe find this who's read a lot of comics? A total stranger who's read a lot of comics. Is there a chance they might find this slightly refreshing? You know, um, and maybe they don't, but that was my bar before any plot or any story, right? So immediately dating was out because I was like, I don't have any great dating stories. I just don't think I do. And I've already read better Jeffrey Brown, people with, you know, and uh, I didn't want to write any stories about being a struggling artist because I've already read a million of those and I don't have anything new to contribute. So at the time I moved to Brooklyn, I grew up in Long Island. And at the time I moved to Greenpoint, Brooklyn, right next to Williamsburg. And I happened to move there at a time when those neighborhoods were blowing up. Um, and I moved there just before they blew up. So this neighborhood, which was a sleepy, quiet, formerly industrial neighborhood, much like Bushwick and these other places are now, I thought, ooh, there's an electricity in the neighborhood. I had just read Harvey P. Carr's Cleveland with an introduction by Alan Moore. I was like, whoa, I mean, I know P. Carr is amazing, but Alan Moore wrote the introduction to his book. And I was also a big fan of Dean Haspiel's work, which has a lot of that baked-in Brooklyn flavor, right? The New York flavor you were talking about. And I always love the art of so many artists, but especially a guy named Joseph Remnant, who might not be a household name, but drew a lot of Picar stuff. Um, and it's a little bit like very cross-hatchy and hyper-detailed. And, and I was like, all right, I've been reading the Dean Haspiel and Harvey. It's baked into my brain and baked into my soul. Now I'm going to do you know, Billy Joel, when he sat down to write the song Baby Grand, and a lot of musicians do this, and I'm a huge music fan. Billy Joel said, I'm going to write a song in the style of Ray Charles and hope it's good. And the song was so good that Ray Charles did it with him as a duet. Elvis Costello sat down to write, I'm going to write a George Jones country song, but filtered through me, filtered through my musical soul. So these first autobio stories I did, I was like, I'm going to write my stories of living in this neighborhood in Brooklyn, which was becoming very trendy at the time. 
and try to find story topics that I haven't seen a million times before. If it smells like I've seen it a million times before, I won't allow myself to spend hours drawing it because it's so time consuming to draw. <laughs> so really, it was very much like Elvis Costello writing a George Jones song, you know, uh, the Rolling Stones writing a Sam and Dave song. This was Tony Wolf writing Harvey Picar, Dean Haspiel, and every other autobiography thing I'd ever read. But, you know, through my, not aping anyone, but through my sensibilities. And those started to get a little press. They got press from New York Magazine and Vulture. And I thought, I expected no one to care necessarily. I think these are good stories. You know, I don't think they're, I don't think they're the revelation of, of, of the Bible. But, you know, I don't <laughs> think they're like God's gift. I don't think they're like earth shattering. But I think they're cute little stories, and I'm proud of them. I put a lot of work into them not being cliche. And also the other thing I always learned is if you can write about something that hasn't been written about, even a topic, right? I mean, once again, not just dating, but I'd never seen a story about the bars in Greenpoint. I'd never seen a story set in this park, McCarran Park. I'd never seen a story about X, you know, and then eventually I thought, I've never seen a story about ice cream. So I'm going to do a comic book story about my favorite weird ice cream. And our friend George saw it and and showed it to the New York Times. And suddenly they were saying they wanted to run this story. Like that was like lightning in a bottle. But all I wanted to do setting out was to tell a weird story. I'd never seen a comic about ice cream. So by God, I was going to do a comic about ice cream, whether anyone cared or not. You know, so, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm very verbose. Please, just no, no, uh, I, I think it's yeah, fascinating yeah. The, the 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 journey you took to, to to get where you are, and you know, as you said, you get uh, talked to by the time and stuff like that. But for this book also, uh, we spoke a little bit about this earlier as well. Uh, Bill Sinkevich, uh wrote a, a very nice things about the book. You have other big names writing such kind of things about this book. That has to be a real shot in the arm for you that your work is connecting with people. Yeah, thank you. I it honestly, um, it feels the way it's gonna feel when I eventually get huge acting jobs. You know, like it feels like I I idolize these people. I've looked up to these people for years. You know, the outside world may not know a lot of them, but to us, they are megastars, they are celebrities. Um in this world that we are in of, of comics and the arts in comics. And over the years, I've had, you know, like a lot of things, at first it's a, a little trickle, and then there's a little more of a trickle. And it can still also feel like drops in a raindrops in a bucket. But eventually, as the cliche goes, you fill that bucket up with enough raindrops over 15 years. And then eventually, you know, you got a heavy bucket. Um, first it was our friend, uh, George Gustines of the New York times, uh, George Gustines, um, who showed my work to the, you know, very kind, uh, very unusual. Um, and, uh, we had become friends, friends through social media and he liked my stuff and liked my work. And, um, and then through that, a few other artists and writers and creators who I'd idolized as a kid were like, hey, they were like, you know, looking, 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 you know, down from the heavens going, hey, kid, 
this was okay. Not bad kid. You know, like, and a couple of them started following me on Twitter. And I was like, even if, even if uh, no one in my family knows who these people are, I know who they are. I know who they, what they've contributed to this art form. And like, well, like with a lot of things, uh, Oren, it was very slow. It was really like a slow trickle of like every two or three years, I might get one person, you know, who was like, hey, okay, I like what you're doing over there. You know, I mean, also my stuff is not, it's not earth shattering. It's, I'm very, I'm proud of it. But it's also not, you know, I'm not reinventing the medium. I'm just telling stories that I find hopefully interesting and hopefully trying to be innovative in my small way. Um, and Bill Sienkiewicz, it's very funny. I used to, like a lot of us, go to a lot of comic book conventions, and I still do, although COVID, I, I've been a little wary of them during COVID. But I used to go to the Big Did you go to the Big Apple Comic Convention in Manhattan years ago? No, I did not. Okay, so it was, it was a small convention called the Big Apple Comic Con, and it was held in like a kind of crappy hotel across from Penn Station. Mm -hmm. And there's a guy named Mike Carbone who uh, would always organize it, and he was quite a funny character. And you know, um, Mike Carbone, hey, I got the Big Apple New York Comic Con, and you know, very colorful New York City character. And it was like a very small convention. In a kind of like a crappy hotel, like I said, and I used to go and see Bill Sienkiewicz at the convention, and I would talk to him in my 20s and 30s when I was not ever imagining that I would do comics anymore. I would just talk to him as a fan. You know, I was like, I'm an actor who loves comics. And I remember talking with him, you know, I would talk for five or 10 minutes, and then I would say to myself, leave him alone. He's got other people to talk to, and I would move on. But over the years, you know, you, you know how it is. You say you're five or six minutes and you talk and you try to you try to do something other than just say, you're great. Oh, my gosh, you're great. Um, <laughs> and then you move along. But I think he kind of half remembered me uh, through the years. Mm -hmm. And then when I started doing comics, I did a few comics also about I was also trying to think of other genres. Right. I did the Greenpoint comics. I did some ice cream comics. I started to do food comics. And then I thought, you know what I would love to do that I haven't seen before? I've seen a few of them. Comics about being a comics fan. Like I've occasionally, there was a, Bendis years ago, I think put out, somehow was involved with a mini comic or a small press comic. And it was all Funny autobio stories from comics writers. And Bendis had one about pooping green poop when he ate too many chocolate puddings as a kid. Mark Wade had a story. Um, and I always remembered that. And I was like, ooh. And I always loved when I, very rarely you would see this, but I would see essays about comics done in comics form where it was like the writer had like a thesis. It was almost like a PowerPoint presentation where it's like, I'm going to talk to you about Quasar and why it was a good book, but it would be in comics form. And it would be like five pages and it would be a web comic. And I would see those very rarely. And I thought, oh, I want to do more of those. And I know what my first one will be. And it will be about voting to kill Jason Todd and what that felt like as a teenager. Because that I remember going, that's pretty messed up that I was eagerly voting to kill this cat, this kid, right? I mean, did you did you vote 
to kill Jason Todd or what were you around when that was live happening? I remember it happening, but I was too young. I think if I asked my parents to to do that, they would have just yes, told yes. me like, you're crazy. Like, no, go find something else to do with your time. But no, I do remember yes. it very well. And just thinking to myself like, whoa, man, like that's heavy stuff. Like they're going to yes. help somebody and we're voting on it. I was fascinated with it, both as a marketing thing. I was also fascinated with it. The fact that it had never been done before in comics. Like, have the readers determine the outcome blatantly by a vote. Um, to me, it was fast. Over the years, I always thought about that. And it always stuck. And I read a few. There were like some blogs, right, about that phenomenon. And I read the blogs in my research. And I thought, I have some other. I have a thesis. I'm like a. am still in. It's almost like I'm still a college kid writing thesis papers. You know, I have a thesis about the death of Jason Todd. And I think I could tell it as a comic story, you know, where it's it's half of, again, half of my autobio experience of it and weaving in some history about it that wasn't in those blogs or history that I thought was not sufficiently covered in those blogs. Um, and that story also got into Vulture and they said, Tony's work is comparable to Scott McCloud. And I was like, I fell over, you know, I was like, I'm, my work is comparable to Scott McCloud. Okay. I can die now. You know, like, so that, as you said, all of this stuff was a shot in the arm. I was, I was in, I probably would have kept doing comics anyway, even if no one gave a crap, just like I'm still auditioning for, for some bigger parts. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not a lead on your TV show yet. But in the arts, it's like you have to have you have to have so much hope and so much drive because you're going to get rejected a million times. You're going to get people are going to not want your stuff. People are going to ignore your stuff. People are not going to buy your stuff. You really have to like it's Eye of the Tiger, man. It's Rocky Three, Eye of the Tiger. Like, <laughs> you know, um, uh, all I wanted to do was keep doing short stories that I was enthusiastic about and that I was proud of. And to this day, that is still my my goal, you know. Um, and so Bill Sankevich, I ended up doing a bunch of stories. I think he saw the uh, the Jason Todd death story that I did, which I called 1-800-DEAD-ROBIN, which is slightly wrong, of course, because it was a 900 number. But I thought 1-900-DEAD-ROBIN isn't as funny a title as 1-800-DEAD-ROBIN. <laughs> so comics enthusiasts will forgive me for the comedic license, you know. Um, <laughs> but years later, I sometimes with these stories, I'm like a reporter. It's almost like I also might, you know, we all have like secret dreams, right? And one of my secret dreams, in addition to being an actor and comics artist, was to be a journalist was to be a reporter. So when I've done my food comics or the even the Jason Todd or I did a comic about Alpha Flight, it's almost like I want to be Clark Kent. I want to be a reporter and write a story that the other reporters didn't smell. It's like Ralph Dibney, my little nose for a story. He has the nose for the mystery like <laughs> you know. My my nose like the nose in Bewitched uh from uh, Samantha in Bewitched. My nose, I'm like, ooh, I I found this out, and I've never seen a story about it in a, in a major newspaper. My my reporter nose is going, dig -a, dig -a, dig -a. <laughs> I need to spend six months of my life 
researching the hell out of it and trying to make it into a comic that I think people might care about, hopefully. And even if they don't, I will have made the story. Like, um, And so I did a story about, uh, I found out about the only female police officer, the only female NYPD officer to die on 9-11 saving others. And her name is Moira Smith. And I researched her a lot. And I thought, the only female cop to die on 9-11? Why is there not a movie about her? Like, what? I, I know there's a lot of, like, criticisms of the police in, in our society as a culture. And I understand and respect those criticisms. Right. But in the same token, the only female cop to die on 9-11 while saving lives? And, you know, she saved 500 lives? Why do I, why are there not more articles about this person? So I immediately, something in my bones was like, that's my next comic. And I don't care that it's not about anything geeky. I, I, I wanted to play journalist. I wanted to play reporter and use my art skills to make it a comic. So I researched the heck out of it. I researched obscure websites that no one looks at practically. Like, I really want to find, like, if you were going to write a book about something, you need to find the obscure sources that aren't in all the other books about it. You know, the obscure website that no one else looks at except you because you're spending six hours researching it on a Saturday afternoon or something. Yeah. I did that comic and I thought, gosh, wouldn't it be great if I found a female colorist to watercolor it? Because then it would be about the only female police officer to die on 9-11 in Manhattan and it would be colored by a female colorist. And wouldn't that, I thought, Maybe that's too tall an order, but wouldn't that be great? And two weeks later or a month later, I was at a, uh, not like an anthropology, but like, uh, not Bed Bath & Beyond, but one of those stores, I lived in Hoboken at the time with my girlfriend, now wife, and there was a woman exhibiting her art, you know, like a, like a pop-up. And she was an insanely brilliant watercolor painter. And I thought, Oh my gosh. I thought this woman is so good. Look at her art. She doesn't need me, but I've been in the New York Times a few times. So maybe if I tell her, I would like you to watercolor this, and I have the New York Times on my resume, maybe she will give me the time of day and take me seriously. Well, she did. We did. And she painted the story. And um, I have a colorist who colored. 85% of that paperback, Tales from the Wolf, whose name is Thomas Griffin, who's a fantastic colorist and a great guy. And for this one, I said to Thomas, I was like, no offense, but I kind of really want a woman, you know, more female directors, more female cinematographers. I want a female colorist for this particular story. So Thomas did a wonderful job on so much of that book, um, Tales from the Wolf. But this woman named Morgan McHugh painted it. And I felt like an actor who discovered the next brilliant actor. I was like, Morgan McHugh is going to be like a famous artist, like well before me, you know, uh, and I will, I will be glad to have played a small part in getting her work out to a larger audience, but she's, she paints her own stuff. Like she's, she doesn't need to, you know, this was like slumming it for her coloring someone else's art. She paints her own art, you know, but um, I'm joking when I say slumming it, but anyway. <laughs> There is a point to all this. It's very circuitous. I released that story about Morris Smith. Um, and I was very proud of it. 
we got interviewed on New York One News by uh, Pat Kiernan and the people on the, you know, the network. And Bill Sienkiewicz wrote to me on Twitter and he enjoyed the other ones. But he wrote to me and said that story about the police officer. He goes, that was really special. Like that, that struck a nerve in him. And I saw him at, I believe, MoCA or Comic Arts Fest several months after it came out. And he's Bill Sienkiewicz. He's strolling the, you know, the floor. And I said hi to him. And he stopped and talked to me for like 10 or 15 minutes. He said, I want to know how you put together that story. I want to hear about it. And I was, it was like Marlon Brando or, you know, it was like Brad Pitt had just pulled me aside and said he liked me in a movie or something. So that's the fact that he, you know, took that time with me and he could have walked away after a minute and just said, oh, I like that and left. But um, and I I talked to him at conventions for years previous, but by that point, I don't know something. And I, to be honest, I never could have predicted that that would be the story that, you know, that story does look a little bit more like a fine arts piece and less like a comic. Um, and her watercolors made my art look a million times better. Like. I just think in general, coloring makes art pop. You know what I mean? My black and white art, I'm proud of it. It's fine. But uh, coloring makes things pop. Coloring just makes things leap off the page and it gets it gets visual attention. So that, by the way, that was three years ago. So now I do the paperback and I'm like, Bill Sienkiewicz, I think I could ask him. I think there's enough of a relationship. He seems to actually care a little bit. I mean, obviously, he's trying to be supportive to so many people, right? He's supportive to his peers who are at his level. He's also trying to be supportive to people who are not at that mega level. So I uh, I talked to some friends. I talked to Rick Parker, who's a cartoonist who you may know and, you know, was a letterer for Marvel for years and did the Beavis and Butthead comic. And now he's got a book coming out, which is going to be really special from Abrams Books about his time uh, with uh, with the military during Vietnam. Yeah. It's an autobiography book Rick Parker is doing called Drafted. Yeah. But I went to Rick Parker and I was like, I kind of want to ask Bill Sienkiewicz, but I'm a little nervous. Do you think I should? Do you think it's silly? And he was like, Tony, he's like, you're 50 years old. Swing for the fences. Ask. All they can do is say no, these people who we who we venerate. They're just human beings. Just like if you were to meet some famous actor or some famous writer they're just people and all they can do is say a polite no thank you so <laughs> that was the i was bullied by rick parker being like you know what you're 50 years old what do you got to lose ask these people you know and, and i thought maybe i have enough of a body of work in my small indie way that he might consider it so now do you see i mean i know this book is it's just a, it's coming out soon in your mind, is there another book percolating? Or do you want to see how this goes first and then <laughs> go from there? Yeah, I kind of want to see how this goes first. It's a, it's a very valid question. Um, it took me almost 12 years, 15 years to build up 200 pages. You know what I mean? Um, I tend to think of myself as a short story guy um, only because 
Look, you you you've interviewed a lot of greats who are full time uh, creators, but I'm not a full. You know, I, unless I get laid off from my job tomorrow or or next year, I you know, uh, I can't subsist on the income from an indie comic or you know, um, so I I've actually been offered the chance to draw a graphic novel once or twice in the last two years, and it was like. We can't really pay you anything because it's on an advance and we hope we get a publisher. And I was like, I, I don't think unless my soul was like the material or the writing, you know, unless I was like, oh, my gosh, my intuition says I have to do this. Like it's lit my soul on fire kind of a thing. <laughs> um, I'm pretty content being a guy who does two or three short stories a year. I do a lot of like covers and pinups for other people's books, other other indie books that I like. I'm like, I'll do a pinup for you. You know, I'll be a guest in your house, uh, metaphorically, to try to contribute to your stories. Um, I like doing pieces for anthology, anthology books. Um, I like anthology books. I've done a couple of those. Um, you know, uh, it's possible. Some I have I have stories in mind that might warrant a full other graphic novel, but you know, we have jobs, we have, uh, you know, in case you have kids or I, it's, it takes so much time. I'm sure you've talked, you've interviewed so many great people on this, on this program, on your podcasts and your, your channel. It's like six to seven hours a day to draw uh, what a page, most of a page. Um, have you, have you like, has your brain, I'm always very attentive to, uh, have you off the top of your head, like how, you know, Todd McFarlane, one page a day, maybe? Yeah. You know? And there are certain guys that they'll be like, oh, I can maybe do two pages a day. And you're like, wait, what? And yeah. but that's that's really like the exception to the rule. I mean, it takes a long time with the detail and stuff like yeah. that. And or some people say like, I'll pencil a page in a day and maybe I'll ink half of it or something. Um, and I do all my own lettering by hand also, which I like, but is time consuming as well. <laughs> so, you know, someday I have to, I have to learn. I don't really know Photoshop and all these, I, I I'm very old school. Like I'm on paper and I like the hand lettering, but eventually I know it would save me time, but it's almost like I don't have enough free time to devote like a week to just learning Photoshop and nothing else or learning digital lettering and nothing else. Um, but I would like to do a second book, but I know again that like publishers, when I was pitching this to publishers, they were like, if you don't have at least a hundred pages, who cares? Because they want a spine. They don't want, they want a paperback that'll have a spine on the shelf. So to go back to your earlier question um, real quick, I did throw a little childhood art in the back matter. I wanted a back matter section. Um, so this book is essentially two thirds all my comics, and the or, or three quarters all my comics, and the latter quarter is a back matter of like assorted pinups, drawings. I did a drawing for the official Neil Gaiman documentary that he Neil Gaiman like was followed around by this crew for a year and a half on his tour. My friends Patrick Meany and Jordan Rennert. Um, uh, I did a piece for that. So that goes in the back matter because it's like a one-off illustration, right? Where else are you going to put it? Um, 
And I threw some childhood drawings in the back matter. Cause I, I always love like when Alex Ross put up his like, you know, Superman age eight by Alex Ross. Like I love stuff like that. So I tried not to do too much. Cause I thought that it might be too self-indulgent to have a lot of childhood art, but there's some childhood art in there. Um, so where can folks buy the book and where, where could it be found? Is it going to be local comic shops too, or? Uh, so we're working on getting it into local comic shops. I expect there are two comic shops that I think it will uh, almost certainly be in. And that is Everyone Comics and Anyone Comics. Uh, Anyone Comics is in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, uh, owned by Demetrios Fragiscados <laughs> and Thomas Griffin. Uh, Thomas Griffin, of course, who also colored uh, a great deal of the book and did a lot of the formatting, and he was the original uh, production editor for the technical stuff that that I'm not good at. I don't know how to do it. He has the skills and I don't, uh, and he was tremendously helpful with all that. Demetrios owns Anyone Comics in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, and he also co-owns a store called Everyone Comics, like a sister store, which is in Long Island City, Queens. But right now, first and foremost, the book is available from CosmicLionProductions.com. And that's spelled like it sounds. There's a Cosmic Lion. <laughs> it's CosmicLionProductions.com. And Cosmic Lion, the publisher, is a gentleman named Eli Schwab, who uh, has been putting together a lot of comics for many years. He is a... a sort of an unofficial liaison with the Ed Piscor and Jim Rugg with the cartoonist Kayfabe group. He Eli started a Facebook group called Cartoonist Kayfabe Ringside Seats. And it's a lot of indie creators like myself who are obsessed with comics and making comics. And uh, they all, all share their art, their books, their indie books, their projects, their passions, their aspirations. So that's a Facebook group called Cartoonist Kayfabe Ringside Seats. Uh, I was never a wrestling guy, but I know that's a wrestling term, right? The kayfabe. Um, so the book is available for purchase exclusively at the moment at CosmicLionProductions.com. Uh, they are on Instagram also at CosmicLion on Instagram. Uh, they have other books there like a book called Space Nights by Kevin Anthony Catalan, um, a book called Weird Myths, book called Ghost Agents. They got a whole lot of amazing books, and I'm, I was very thrilled to be added to their uh, their roster of, uh, of creators and authors. Um, Eli Schwab also has a podcast about Grendel that they've had Matt Wagner on a bunch about, because he's a Grendel-obsessed guy. So I know a little bit about Grendel, but I, he's like a deep-dive Grendel guy. Um, <laughs> Uh, so yeah, the book is called Tales from the Wolf, just 20 bucks for 224 pages. And, uh, Derek, Derek Robertson also gave us a quote for the book. Um, the co-creator of the boys. And we were extremely just very thankful to, to anyone who very kindly gave us, you know, gave me a quote for the book. Um, now also I'm curious, Oren, you started doing this podcast. I saw in 2021. Is that right? That's right. Born and uh, COVID, and was it begun with your typical three co your other two co hosts? Uh, yeah, it was Joe and I for a little while, and then we brought Mike in. So uh, it's grown from there, and uh, we have a whole little uh, Q 
community going on. So it's 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 nice to meet people like meeting yourself through people in the comic community. And I think that's what's the best thing about this is you get to know so many different people. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and so you started it only what it was. It was born entirely out of COVID primarily. Yeah. Just we decided, hey, let's just start interviewing people and see what happens. I used to be a newspaper. That's very cool. And, uh, so far, so good. So we're hoping that it keeps on uh, chugging along. Yeah, you got you got a lot of them. You got Mark Wade on. I I really want to watch the second one of that. He's I love his. Are you reading all his stuff now? I am the exception, the rule in the group. I read comics from 1993 and earlier. I don't know a lot of the new stuff. Oh, cool. Well, okay. The other guys are the the, the new stuff, but uh, you know, I make exceptions for uh, certain projects, much like yours would be. Uh, I'm, I'm looking. Oh, for- thank you. <laughs> Um, what are your favorite books, you know, as you go through like what, 80s and 90s books primarily? Yeah, I guess it's top books got to be John Sable Freelance. I love mm-hmm. that. Um, nice. Fantastic Fours I love. I love the Marvel team-ups, any kind of team-up books I really enjoy. Nice. Um, and Badger. I love Badger. Badger, yes. Badger. Now, Badger was Mike Barron and mostly illustrated by Bill Reinhold, if I recall correctly. He was there for a while. Ron Lim did it for a little bit. Uh, Stephen Butler did it for a while. So. Early, it must have been early Ron Lim. Too. Yeah, I think that was his. He was coming off of uh, X Mutants, and then he did that, and then that X Mutants. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I, I remember seeing. The, I remember seeing the ads for X Mutants and going, "Wow, what a blatant ripoff parody homage!" You know, EX hyphen mutants. mutants. <laughs> <laughs> X-Mutants. And like we got to interview Ron Lim and I asked him about that. And he's like, wow. He's like, nobody really asked me about X-Mutants. That's a deep dive. He's like, that's how big my fandom is. Wow. X-Mutants. Mm-hmm. John Sable, that's Mike Grell, right? Yep. That was a beautiful book. How many issues did that go up to like 20 or 17? Or I think it I have up to issue 40. But I can't find anything at a local comic shop that goes past 40. I think there are ones. So I have the okay. online to, to pick up the rest of those. So you you truly are, especially a dollar bin bandit, literally. I basically just hit the dollar bin, so I figure I can get more for my money if I bring in twenty bucks instead of getting one book for twenty. I can get yes books and have adventures with each and every one of them. That's awesome. And I saw you did a video with your son uh, <laughs> about the dollar bin. What were like? What were some of the highlights? Like, what did he like or? He, the two of them, my daughter and my son, they look at the, the uh, covers and they tell me what they think of the art and stuff like that. Oh, yes, yes. I'm trying to dig them into a little bit. My daughter loves graphic novels, though she claims they're not comic books. Um, my son loves superheroes, but just trying to parlay him into the books themselves. It's a bit of an uphill battle. I'm sure it's always because if your dad thinks something's cool, then it's usually not. Yes. So, how, how old are they each? Uh, my son is seven and my daughter is 10 going on 11. Okay. Okay. They're, they're hopefully getting that age. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Does he look at some of like the Marvel movies and stuff or not quite old? Spidey's Amazing Friends cartoons. He loves Doctor Strange. Oh, yes. He, he has fun with that. And I'm like, hey, if you like those, all these books here, they have the people. And I'm like, eh, reading. Yeah. Right. No, I understand. <laughs> Spidey and his Amazing Friends. Were you watching that? Like, when I was a kid, they have a new one now, but I, of course, watched it with Iceman and Firestar and uh, Stan Lee doing the uh, the introductions and stuff like that. Yes. Hi, heroes. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's, it's, it, it sucked you in. Like, you had that. You had Super Friends. Um, yeah. All these wonderful shows that sort of 
got you in tune. And then yes. I think for our generation, we'd like that. So we wanted to read the books, but nowadays with tablets and everything on the internet, I just don't yes. think the appeal is there for kids to go a different direction, explore that when they could just watch the video. Sure, sure. I remember, and my friends, I was probably in seventh grade when Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends was on, maybe seventh or sixth, when they had the X-Men episode where the X-Men cameoed and Wolverine was there, our minds were blown. <laughs> we, never thought, we never thought we'd see the X-Men animated. And we were going crazy. Well, there's also, and, and of course. Oh, sorry. You go. No, no, I go. Uh, go ahead with the X Men. The the Wolverine who sounded like vaguely Australian or something. <laughs> like, he sounded like a very weird accent. I don't know if you recall. He was like, "Now it's my turn." Maybe they maybe they were psychically seeing that Hugh Jackman, an Australian actor, would play him in the future. A Canadian character, but they're like, "Well, there's really no Canadian accent. Australians." Yeah. Within yeah, the ballpark. It was so funny. <laughs> but just to see them animated, we were like throwing a party. We were going, it blew our minds. We lost our minds. <laughs> and I don't know if that's, I think we still get that a little bit with some of the movies where there'll be a, an Easter egg or a character will pop up. We'll be like, oh. Yes. But I think that's our generation doing that. I don't think it's the younger generation. They probably wouldn't get the same thrill. Even when with Black Panther 2, seeing namor and seeing him done well i was like i never thought i lived to see i mean a lot of geeks around the world are saying this right but it's like i never thought i'd live to see fill in the blank like moon Knight, much 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 less executed well like a doctor strange movie a doctor strange scene we never thought we'd see these you know (laughs) so we it is truly like a great time to be alive i know we say this you know Society has other problems, certainly, but <laughs> but as far as like pop culture, man, it's a golden age. Yeah. It's a lot of fun to to see it grow and to be a part of it as well. Hey, welcome back, everyone. Another great interview by Orn. That's really the gist of what I'm going to say. I, I'll be quite honest with you. I didn't really know too much about Tony prior to this interview, but uh, Orn, as Mike said, brought his A game and I found it absolutely fascinating. So Orn, Another great job. Yeah, Tony's a a very creative guy. I mean, he's an actor. He's a writer. He's a cartoonist. I mean, uh, all sorts of plates up in there of things he works on. And just to hear the creation of this and how he comes up with these stories and his process uh, was really, really interesting. Yeah, I loved hearing about all the creative perspectives that Tony brings to his work. As Joe said, great job, Oren. And that'll do it for this week. Thank you all for listening. And uh, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. And we'll see you next week. Peace. The Dollar Bin Bandits are Oren Phillips, Joe Marcello, and Mike Farah. New episodes release every Wednesday and Friday. You can find us on all the socials at Dollar Bin Bandits on Facebook and Instagram, at DB Bandits on X. For more super nerdy discourse, join the Dollarbin Banter Group on Facebook. You can email us at dollarbinbandits at gmail.com. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you found this episode. It's the easiest and most helpful way to grow the show. Looking for merch? Search us up on TeePublic. And if you want to support what we do, smash that support button on our website, dollarbinbandits.buzzsprout.com. 
Thank you to Sean McMillan for our graphics and Pat McGrath for our logo. Thank you to our friends at Tomorrow's Publishing, T-W-O-M-O-R-R-O-W-S.com. And thank you all for listening. Until next time, banditos.